0: I'll invite you to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide where you'll find uh, the sermon scripture reading. We're reading in Psalm 2 today. I'll invite Allison um, to read for us. Uh, Before she starts, I'll just give you a bit of a a background on the book of Psalms. This is just our second week looking at the book of Psalms. So we're in in Psalm 2. We did Psalm 1 last week. The book of Psalms is the songbook for God's people. It's the melody of the maturing Christian life. The word psalms in Greek, in Greek, it means songs. So the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 songs written by many authors in numerous places and in a multitude of different circumstances over the course of nearly a 1,000 years, and it was compiled sometime around uh, 400 B.C. These songs uh, have been treasured. They've been used by God's people in both public and private worship for millennia. So why should we, in 2020, or whatever year we're in, why should we take time to meditate on these 150 songs, to learn, to memorize, to sing them as we did during our worship, to pray them personally? Well, for a, f- a few reasons. Uh, first, Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible and the summary of the Old Testament. The Psalms are, are God's words to his people, written by human authors inspired by the Spirit, but they're written in order to give us a depth and breadth in our understanding of who God is, what he's spoken what he's done for his people throughout history. Uh, Secondly, John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. The Psalms offer prayers to God which give voice to the everyday griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, and perplexities which God's people have always experienced. So the Psalms teach us... uh, how we can connect with God, how we can offer up faithful, mature, often surprising prayers about our doubt, about our fear, about our hopes. God himself gives the book of Psalms to his people so that we can know who he is and what faithfully living before him in all of life's ups and downs looks like. Allison.
1: Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for your word to us, uh, which has been preserved and passed down faithfully from those before us. God, we ask that you would build our faith through uh, the reading and the preaching of the word, that this song would become our song. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned last week when we were going through Psalm 1 that Psalm 1 and 2 have have historically been known as the introduction to the book of Psalms. They set themes, they set ideas that will be present in all of the 148 psalms that follow. In Psalm 1, we read a very clear kind of wisdom psalm that there are only two ways that a person can live, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 agrees with Psalm 1, but in it there's this move from the personal to the more public sphere psalm 2 focuses not on individuals on the way of the righteous but the righteous one himself it focuses on god's anointed god's king who is also god's own son and how he relates publicly to all people on the earth if you want a summary uh, uh, psalm 2 on a postage stamp it's this god's king reigns which means ruin to the proud but refuge for the humble. That's kind of a summary of Psalm 2. God's king reigns. The theme of Psalm 1 from last week is that individuals are called to walk in the way of the righteous. And that's good, but it's actually not complete. The message of Psalm 2 is very important for us and for our world. And it's this, is that God has bigger plans than you. He has bigger plans for you. He has a bigger destiny For his chosen king his son than being your personal king inside your heart actually god calls all people all nations to know serve and to find refuge in him there was a quote uh, that was you know in in large silver letters on the side of a chapel at a seminary that i uh, that i attended Um, and it it comes from a biblical scholar from about a century ago a guy named jb phillips and this was the quote it's only five words very very simple very short and it's this your God is too small. Your God is too small. And what J.B. was convinced of a century ago is that many people had no time for God because they conceived of him in small, almost comic terms. Uh, And so J.B. wrote uh, in a book uh, of the same title about the various small gods that people tended to imagine the God of the Bible to be. For some, God is the resident policeman. His purpose, his, his, his reason for being is to correct people, to, to tell them not to do bad things. For other people, God is the grand old man. He's rich, he owns the place, but he's, you know, he, his existence is just tottering somewhere up in heaven. He's distant and he's somewhat forgettable, removed from the events of everyday life. Or perhaps that God is the meek and mild one. You know, he tuts at all the evil he sees on earth. He wishes that we could all just get along but he's too gentle, he's too mild-mannered himself to get involved in any of the mess of earth. When people's vision of God comes from their own imaginations or it comes from pop cultures or or books that they read or or podcasts, they're often left with a God who is inadequate, utterly inadequate, to deal with the challenges and the complexities of, of their personal lives but also of the world around them. And so such a God is easily dismissed. He's easily denied. Such a God as jb phillips a very small god he may be able to bring you personally a small measure of comfort but such a god a small god is utterly out of his depth when it comes to the world stage and jb phillips he looked at this view of god that some people had and some people have today and said your god is too small when what psalm 2 gives us is a very big god the god of the bible A God whose sovereignty and power is without limit, who rules through his anointed king, not just in heaven, not just in the secret hearts of his individual people, but who rules over every square inch of the cosmos, over every nation, over Canada, and over Halifax, who fears no enemy, will not tolerate rebellion forever, and yet we find is generous, who offers any and every rebel to come to him in humility. Psalm 2, we could divide it into four parts, and that's what we'll do. We'll look at each one of them in turn. So this is part one, about verses one through three, the raging nations. Part one, the raging nations. If you look down at verses one through three, the psalmist sees the nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers, all with one voice, rejecting God their maker. Verse 2 says that their battle isn't simply against God in the abstract, but specifically against God and his anointed. And historically, again, these psalms were written some at least 2,500 years ago. Uh, these, uh, this figure is probably referring either to King David or to one of the heirs of King David's throne in ancient Israel. These kings were literally anointed. They were anointed with oil, and that was a symbolic act which set them apart to rule over God's people. But not only were they called to rule God's people, but they were also called to represent Uh, God to the nations. If you know who Mary Simon is, she's Canada's governor general and she represents her royal highness, Queen Elizabeth II in Canada. Mary Simon serves at her majesty's pleasure, fulfilling Queen Elizabeth's constitutional and ceremonial duties in her stead and so to treat mary simon with a particular kind of honor is to honor the queen herself to treat mary simon poorly is to treat the queen poorly and in a similar way while god is the ruler of all things the creator of all things this is what he's decided to do he's decided to rule by the hand of his anointed king thus in this psalm we see to honor or to rebel against the king that god has chosen for himself was to honor or to rebel against god himself and while This psalm is very clearly historically written about Israelite kings. The ultimate reference to this psalm is Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of God, the king of kings. And so this is the message in Psalm 2 as well. To reject Jesus is to reject God. To embrace Jesus is to embrace God. The raging of the nations, this... uh, you know, the words that are in verses one through three, the frothing, furious, bitter, angry opposition to God and to Jesus Christ. We see this isn't like a modern phenomenon. This has been happening both in modern and ancient times. In current day, you can see this in a particular kind of, like an angry atheism, which holds to two major tenets: First, there is no God. Second, I hate him. And so insults are hurled at God. Jesus is belittled. Christians are treated either as idiots or fools or even as as public dangers to civil order. And while that's kind of an extreme version of it, I think perhaps a more common one is just more of a run-of-the-mill rejection of God and his King Jesus, which either consciously or unconsciously says, if God is God, that means I am not. If Jesus is the King then I lose my independence. I lose the ability to be the king or the queen of my own life. I would no longer be the final authority for what I can or cannot do, for what is right or what is wrong. And so I'm finally accountable to him for my every thought, word, and deed. No thank you. I'll choose independence instead. And this is a good kind of like partial definition of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is living without reference to God. It's disobeying his law, certainly, yes, but it's also rejecting him as king and as lord over all that we are and all that we have. When you decide to live for your own pleasure, to orient your life around, around you, to do what you know God commands you not to do or to not do the things that you know he does command you to, it's not just sin in some abstract sense. No, it's treason. It's cosmic rebellion. It's joining with opponents of God that that have existed throughout the ages who plot together and say, let us burst their bonds apart. What's God's reaction to this kind of rebellion? When God sees a world that's either hostile to him or simply indifferent and ignoring him, what do we imagine God's reaction to this is? So part one is the raging nations. Part two is the Lord's response. This is verses four through six. Look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God's response to the kings of of the earth, to the peoples of the earth, their restless rioting and rebellion, he responds to it with laughter. God scoffs at them. The language here is to tell God's people He's not worried. He's not intimidated by the threats of these mighty kings. He's not calling his PR department to try to smooth things over with the kings of the earth. He laughs. In Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches a sermon and he quotes. uh, uh, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. But Peter preaches... And he uses Psalm 2, and he understands this raging of the nations against God's king, not simply as words, but as as actual physical deeds. In their fury, leaders like Pilate and Herod, both Jews and Gentiles, they not only spoke against Jesus, but they arrested him, they killed him. And when the nations raged against God's anointed son, what was the Lord's response? It was laughter. God laughed at their pitiful attempts to overthrow him, to overthrow his king, and to live apart from his rule. They thought they had succeeded when they crucified the king. But what we learn is that not even death can prevent God's plans from occurring. Look at verses 5 through 6. This is more of God's response to these people. When he speaks to them, he speaks in wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. And, and, And biblically, this isn't like a divine hissy fit. Like God's wrath... Uh, you know, just kind of flying off the handle because he's been slighted. No, God's wrath is his strong, settled, committed opposition to evil and to injustice. He's not flying off the handle like you or I do when we get, you know, insulted in the slightest. No, God is holy. And so when we think of his wrath, when we think of his fury, it is a holy wrath, a holy fury. It is morally upright. It is perfect. When God speaks to his enemies in his wrath and fury, it is his wise and deliberate no to, wicked hum- uh, to human wickedness and folly. God says no to attempts to live apart from Jesus and his kingdom, to find life and peace apart from it. In verse 6, God turns to these kings and he tells them what he has accomplished. He's actually done something. Look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See the nation att- the nation's attempt to destabilize God's rule. They don't want him to be in charge. And God's response to this is pouring out more concrete to establish forever the throne of King Jesus. Nothing they can say, nothing they can do can stop this from happening. And many commentators, they look at these verses and they 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 see such comfort and such hope that such realities ought to bring to God's people. Again, the Psalms are are the melody of the maturing Christian life. They're the songs of God's people. And yet often we see the nations around us raging against God. And that often leads to pain. It means a, a measure of suffering for God's people in some quarters of our world much more intense than others. And God's people have actually always known suffering throughout history. So whether you were you know, a faithful Israelite being enslaved in Egypt, you were, you were an Israelite being exiled into Babylon, you were in the early church when you were persecuted without mercy to Rome, uh, by Rome. God's people sang this song. They rejoiced at the words of Psalm 2. They would sing, God's king reigns. And that means Pharaoh doesn't. That means Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. That means Caesar isn't king, ultimately. It doesn't mean that our prime minister or that, that the president is the chief. God's king reigns, and he has been firmly established. And this is what St. Paul writes about almost in a song in Romans 8. He's convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So listen, whatever evil you're currently facing, whatever slander and hatred opponents of God may hurl at you, may hurl at this church or the churches in Halifax or in Canada, he who sits in the heavens laughs because it's finished. The nations have done their very worst. They killed King Jesus, but he is resurrected. His throne is established forever, and he is for his people. So that's parts one and two the raging nations and the lord's response and now part three verses seven through th- seven through nine the son's inheritance the son's inheritance <clears throat> What does god's chosen king receive after his throne has been established for king david and his descendants again the the, the first recipients of psalm 2 or the first Kind of primary targets, what this meant was a special relationship with God. In verse 7, you see that God expresses this special relationship in terms of being the relationship between a father and his son. David and his sons, they were not divine, they were just human rulers, but God decreed that they would be treated by him like sons. And as sons of God, this meant something very special. It meant a kingly inheritance. They were to inherit all that was God's to give. If you're one of my kids Um, your inheritance consists of a lot of books. Um, You will get some clothes. Many of them were purchased at Costco. Um, You'll get a little bit of savings, hopefully, and then you will receive more books. And this is what a child of mine gets, whatever is mine to give them. What does God's son receive? Everything that is God's to give them. And so this king, again, who ultimately points to David's long-awaited heir, Jesus Christ, He received everything that is God's to give. And there's two things that the psalmist mentions. First, in verse eight, the son receives all the nations of the earth. Ask and I'll give them to you. And the ends of the earth, this is what he receives as his own. Second, in verse nine, the son receives the power to rule these nations. In verse nine, you see that the king is given a rod of iron. Rods were commonly used by shepherds to, to protect the sheep from predators. And it came to be seen as a symbol of authority. You can still see kings and rulers and bishops in authority with with rods. Here the king is given a rod of iron, not, not not a simple wooden rod. For those kings and rulers that would attack and harm God's people, what we see here is that the shepherd king, the King Jesus, he's given power to protect his people. He's not simply the meek and mild Jesus. He rules the nations, not only by caring for his lambs, But by breaking by shattering the injustice and oppression of wolves we only get glimpses of this now we see this imperfectly but we're promised one day this will be complete we can see the 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 solidity of this promise when you look at verse 7 the psalmist says i will tell of the decree Um, the noun decree it comes from the verb to engrave so this is something that has been carved into rock or metal to establish its permanency and so we're called to be confident of this, even though our eyes can't yet see it. God's king reigns. It's accomplished. All nations and all power to rule are his. If you're, if you're a Christian, I wonder what you imagine your mission is in this world, what you consider our mission is as Christ Church Halifax in Halifax. When we preach the gospel, when we teach the good news about Jesus, what is it that we're trying to do? This is what we're not called to do. We're not called to try to gather enough votes to get Jesus elected as king. When Jesus sends out his disciples at, at the end of his earthly ministry to preach the good news to all nations, he's not sending them to territory that he hoped one day might possibly become his. No, those nations are his. They belong to Jesus. And he sends out his disciples to receive the inheritance. The church is simply called to tell of the decree what God himself has etched into stone. Jesus is king. It's done. And the only question remaining to the peoples, to the nations, to the kings, is whether they will continue in their rebellion and pride or whether they will come to the true king in humility. So that's parts one through three, the raging nations, the Lord's response, the son's inheritance. And finally, we come to part four, verses 10 through 12, the humbled nations. The humbled nations. Remember, the big idea from Psalm 2 is God's king reigns, which means ruin to the proud, but refuge for the humble. We see the psalmist in this last part collect all that he said in the last nine verses, and he brings it to a point in our last part. I'll read the whole whole part for you, verses 10 through 12 now. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So this is the question that Psalm 2 asks you. Will you come to God's King in pride or in humility? These are the two ways that you can live, just like we saw in Psalm 1, but, but put not only to individuals but to nations will you serve him rejoice before him with all the appropriate humility and reverence required will you kiss the son to kiss the sun is it's an act of humility and and loyalty when i when i think of it i can't help but see a scene from like a mob movie where you know like the the crime boss is surrounded by people who who, you know kiss his ring or kiss his hand uh, as an act of loyalty just remember that they took that idea from psalm 2 it's not the other way around um, but is this the same thing, essentially, that's happening? God is like, you know, heavenly mob boss, ready to pull the trigger at anyone who won't bow, uh, you know, won't kiss his hand. So you better get on his good side. Not at all. When God was asked his name by Moses, who, who God fundamentally was, when, when, when Moses wanted to know who God was, God responded. He, he self-revealed who he was, and he said this in, in Exodus 34, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness so when the psalmist here tells us that we ought to fear and to tremble he's not talking about some sort of like emotional instability and terror like we would have in the presence of a mob boss rather he's describing a right fitting response to a powerful patient gracious but holy god this is kind of the fitting response that if you're a researcher you know going to mount everest or researching tornadoes or a volcano, you might need to have a measure of humility, uh, being wise in the presence of one so strong. It's rightly understanding the power and the strength that's before you and your weakness and your fragility in its presence. So while God is patient, the psalmist says, his wrath is quickly kindled. Again, not that he flies off the handle when his rage is provoked in the slightest, but, but like kindling or like a, like a volcano that finally bursts, when it is finally lit, It is a mighty blaze. And this is what we see in the scriptures. While God is patient, his wrath is not to be taken lightly. There is a day coming, a final day, when the storm of God's judgment will come in all of its fury. It'll come quickly and suddenly. And on that day, there won't be time. There won't be time to be ready. There won't be time to repent. And his justice will not stop on that day until he has righted every wrong and he's put a final end to all evil and death forever. And the question that the psalmist is pressing on the nations and you as individuals is, are you ready for that day, this sure day that's coming? Will you be warned today? Will you be wise today? Will you be humbled today? Psalm 1, if you can remember it, it began with a blessing. Blessed is the man, the man who walks in the way of the righteous. In Psalm 2, you can see it ends with a blessing as well. Look at verse 12. The last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's king reigns, which means ruin to the proud. But listen, it means refuge. It means refuge for the humble. When you see yourself in the company of the people and the kings and the rulers that Psalm 2 has been writing about, those who would put Jesus to death, if you see yourself among them, you're starting to see yourself rightly. You would have done the same thing if you were there. I would have done the same thing. We don't want God to rule over us. We want to rule ourselves. We want him to be gone, to stay up on the cross. But listen, to the mercy and grace freely offered to you from the cross, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The storm of God's wrath and his anger need not fall on you because there is a shelter. It is a person, a place that you can hide yourself in to find safety and hope and rest. It's the person of Jesus Christ, God's king, the one who we would rage against in love for his enemies, gave himself for us so that in him we could find refuge and blessing. Praise the king who bore my sin, who took my place when I stood condemned. What kind of king would die for sinners, would die for his enemies? Only this king. He's no mob boss, and he's no small god. God's king reigns, and that means ruin for the proud, but refuge, safety, hope, life, peace, and blessing for the humble. So be warned, my friends. Be wise. Kiss the Son, because blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now may Psalm 1 and 2 be the gateways for you into the book of Psalms. May they become the melody of your life. May you walk in the way of the righteous, and may you believe that God's King reigns. May you know that God is a big God, able to handle every challenge and complexity in your life and in the world, that nothing is too big for him, and nothing is too small. May you laugh in faith, knowing you are blessed even when you're persecuted by God's opponents. May you trust that Jesus rules in power over all nations and all peoples, and so is able to bless and keep you. May you repent of your pride and rebellion and your attempts to live apart from God and his word. And may you in humility, with fear and trembling, but with great joy, be blessed and find your refuge in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word, a hard and a sobering word, but also a word of joy and relief for us that the king that we've offended is the same king who has given himself for us so that we can be forgiven and restored and renewed. And we don't have to wonder whether or not we can be changed and healed and be given life because the Son has told us this, that in him and in him alone is everything that we've desired and longed for. Father, I pray that we would find our rest in him. We pray that in his name. Amen.